is to get a key idea this morning, uh, and that is the health, soundness of the doctrine, the health and the soundness of the word that we read, that we believe, that we worship by. And so, I'll read a few verses, and then I'll pray for us, and then uh, I'll share a few things, ask a few questions, and hopefully have kind of something of a roundtable discussion uh, on some of these things together. Titus 1, verse 9, uh, so this is speaking of <coughs> elders, this is one of the two places that Paul talks about elders, uh, Titus 1, verse 9, says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And a few verses later, in verse 14, Verse 13 and 14, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Then chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. So you see that word sound or healthy. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. So to that end, let's pray. And then we'll Father, we do pray uh, that you would make us sound in our faith. Father, for those who are believers in Christ, that you would strengthen our faith this morning. Father, for those who are here in this building this morning who perhaps do not know you and are not believers, that you would open their eyes to be behold the grace and the glory that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, that you would give them faith, that they might trust in you. Together we pray that you would help us understand your word and that you would give us uh, eyes to see clearly the world around us, the songs that we sing, the, the songs that we gather around this morning even in worship, and uh, Father, that you would help us to uh, glorify you in every area of our lives. And we pray for your help this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Alright, does everyone have a, a worksheet here? If not, there are probably still a few more floating around. Um, I want us to think about the health of our doctrine, the health of the songs that we sing, if you will. Uh, before I studied at seminary, I was an exercise science major, uh, so one of the classes we had to do was nutrition. If you've ever done any study in nutrition, uh, the first thing you learn is to learn what's in the food that you are eating, right? So if you go to the grocery store, you may see on the very back of the package, okay, these are the things that you're putting in your body. Maybe you don't care about that at all. Sometimes you go to White Castle, you don't care, right? But other times they say, no, actually, I really want to know what I'm eating. I want to make sure I'm eating the right thing. And you look at those labels and, and all the rest. Don't go too far with that, but that's for another story another day. Uh, but it's good for us as well to think about what are we putting in our hearts? What are we putting in our minds? What are the, the words that we are consuming? Because even as Jesus said, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, that man and woman does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we want to make sure that the words we are consuming are the true words of God. And this word here, sound, is the word for healthy doctrine. If you read through the book of Titus, you'll see that it is sound and healthy doctrine, healthy faith, that is going to produce good works and good fruit in the lives of the believer. And that's what we want. That's why we gather Sunday by Sunday to hear good word and to be able to then walk in accordance with it. And our songs can help us in that, or they can move us in the other direction. So... Write this down for your own thoughts. You don't have to share this with anyone. There's not a right or wrong answer here. What's your favorite song about Jesus? Favorite song 
about Jesus. It's an older song. It's a newer song. Uh, the song that's on my mind about Christ right now is the first one on Together for the Gospel's fourth album, All Praise to Him. Uh, I could sing it, but I won't. Uh, it's just a glorious song, just rejoicing in who God is and trying you, God. Who's your favorite song about Jesus? I've written down a couple songs here uh, that maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not. Uh, I want you, in the first section here, I'm just going to read through them, and put a plus or a minus if it's a good lyric, right? Plus if it's good, minus if it's not, okay? All to Jesus, I surrender. All to Him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him, in His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at His feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. It's hard not to sing that song when you kind of go through the lyrics. <laughs> Plus or minus on those. <coughs> Next song. This is Just Say the Name of Jesus by Hillsong. Maybe you're familiar with it, maybe you're not. Plus or minus is in, in the song. You were the word at the beginning. One with God, the Lord most high. Your hidden glory in creation, now revealed in your own Christ. What if a beautiful name it is. What if a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares to this. What if a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus. You didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. My sin was great. Your love was greater. What could separate us now? What a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a wonderful name it is. Nothing compares to this. Wonderful name, wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. How sweet is your name, Lord, how good you are. Love to sing in the name of the Lord. Love to sing for you all. Death could not hold you, the veil tore you before you. You silenced the boast of sin and the grave. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. You have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. I know I read through that fast, I'm having a hard time keeping up with the pluses and the minuses, but hopefully there are not too many minuses there. Right? So let's think here just a second about I Surrender All. This is written by Judson Van Deventer. He was a Methodist evangelist in the 19th century. The song came to Billy Graham uh, when he was a student in Florida. And of course it was used in many of Billy Graham's crusades as well. Uh, so a very familiar song uh, to us today. Um, any negatives that you see in there? Not a trick question. Probably not, right? They're all pluses, right? Speaking about Jesus, surrendering to him, trusting him along the way, right? What about the next song? Just say the name of Jesus. Any minuses or any things like, I'm not quite sure about this. Who's willing to volunteer? You didn't want heaven without us. 
Yeah. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. What does that mean? Or what questions come to mind as you think about that? Yeah, that God was incomplete in some sort of way, right? The right understanding of God as creator, the right understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that there is nothing lacking in God. God did not create the world because there was something deficient in Him, and therefore He created us to fulfill a void in Him, as much as to see that He is self-sufficient in all that He is in Himself. He was eternally happy, eternally joyous, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes this doctrine is called God's aseity. I have to learn one new word today, right? Aseity, he is ase. He has everything in himself. We are completely and totally deficient. We have great needs. We wake up in the morning and think, I need coffee. <laughs> I need, right? I need food. I need fellowship. I need friendship. I need life. I need breath. I need, God doesn't need us in any sort of way, right? It's the overflow of his joy and his love that he created us so that the bounty of his goodness could be shared and his glory could be seen in that way. Yet, the lyrics here seem to indicate you did not want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. That second lyric also is going to be something we talk about today. What does it mean that he brought heaven down to us? Is this something that we would affirm, that heaven is coming down to us? Perhaps, as we understand that the kingdom has come in Christ, in his incarnation, in his resurrection, and the proclamation of the gospel is going forward to draw people into the kingdom, but there's also a way of saying, no, you need to build the kingdom of God here, and that somehow we are the ones participating in the building of God's kingdom. Right? If you look carefully in the New Testament, you won't find any commands to Christians to build the kingdom. Right? We proclaim the kingdom. Right? We proclaim the message of salvation. We receive the kingdom. We are inheritors of the kingdom because of what Christ has done, but we don't build the kingdom. And so we can ask at least the question, what does it mean that he is bringing heaven down to earth? There's actually a whole background to some of the lyrics that we'll talk about here in a few moments. Anything else from that song there? You have no rival. You have no rival. What, what are you thinking there? Well, he definitely has no equal, but I yeah. would still say Satan is a rival. Ah, against. yeah. So there's a lack of precision in that language, isn't there? Right? So it's definitely the case. It's not as though, C.S. Lewis makes this point, that it's not as though God and Satan are at the same level. Satan is a created being, but he certainly is an enemy, and he is certainly rivaling what, uh, in the world, those who are either going to follow Christ or those who are going to follow the ways of this world. Really good. That's helpful. Yeah. Anything else? There's some good lyrics here. You are the word at the beginning. Right? I mean, that's John 1, right? To speak of that reality. One with God, the Lord, most high, your hidden glory in creation. He has revealed himself in his glory in creation, now revealed in your Christ. So some good lyrics here, right? But then still, there's some other ones, like, this seems to be a little bit troubling. And if we're thinking about what are we eating, what is the diet that we have, it's important to know some of the false lyrics that may be in there as well. Now, I want to look at one other thing, and that is propositional truth, right? So, on the back of any package, you have, okay, sugars, you have fats, you have proteins, all these different things. There are different evaluations of what is in the food that you are eating. Then you have the contents as well. So one of the ways that we can evaluate the songs we're singing, you know, the things that we're thinking is, what are the propositional truths that are being communicated? 
Right? So propositional truth is stating something declaratively about God. Right? So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? Is a propositional truth, which is slightly different than just saying the name of Jesus. Right? Because when you just say the name of Jesus, you are assuming that that person already has an understanding of who he is. Right? I came across this reality a number of years ago, and I was sharing the gospel with a young man. And I said, go read the book of John. And he came back, and he said, why did Jesus become a goat? John, like, what, what is he talking about? Going back, do you mean the passage that says that Jesus is the Lamb of God? who became sin, who came to redeem us from the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God. Oh, okay, so he's confusing the language that is being used in that way. It's a good reminder to us that when we use some of the language from the Bible, we often have to explain what that is, right? So we can ask ourselves in the songs that we're singing, is it assuming that somebody already knows who God is? Or is it actually teaching and instructing something about Jesus? Right? So let's look at this last song called Emmanuel by Carolyn Cobb. And I want you to number, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, how many propositional truths you find in this song. Right? Blessed seed of Abraham, born the nations now to bless. Promised son of Mother Eve of that first man. Come to crush the serpent's head. Christ the sinless Lamb of God, Every law in him complete. Slain to ransom rebel hearts. Raise for us a great high priest. He is here. He is here. Emmanuel, God draws near. At long last, he has come. Emmanuel, the promised one. Isaiah's suffering servant, servant suffering. By his wounds we are healed. Son of man in Daniel's dream. Glorious mystery now revealed. King of kings on David's throne, his rule and reign will never end, and he will bring the exiles home when his advent comes again. Do you have more than five propositional truths there? More than ten propositional truths? Fifteen propositional truths? I mean, we can kind of debate on what is a propositional truth and what is not. We can save that for another time. But maybe 15, 20 different statements that are instructing and informing us who Jesus is. And for the follower of Christ, who knows what these are coming from in the past, it's like, this is just great, glorious truth of who Jesus is. And for the person who's never heard about Jesus, it is instructing them, this is the Christ. How many times is the name of Jesus put forward, and that name of Jesus is inserted into the stories that somebody's already trying to live? Right? So you see, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what I want to do is I want to win the championship. So I'm going to write Philippians 4.13 on my shoe, and Jesus is going to help me to make the shot. Right? It's putting Jesus in the story of the athlete instead of seeing how that athlete needs to actually die to self and come to faith in Christ and to understand the context that is there. Right? So propositional truths matter immensely. Now, let's go back to the first song. Now, I'm not against Billy Graham, Judson Van Deventure, or anything like that, but it's worth considering. How many propositional truths do we find in this song? Number one, two, three, four, five. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. 
in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. How many statements of instruction, how many statements of propositional truth do we find about Jesus in these verses? One, two, ten. Not many, right? How you want to, whether you take it as an example. I mean, if um, humbly at his feet I bow, it would instruct me that he is worthy of our worship. Yeah, so... So there's certainly truth in the way that we're responding, but then it's assuming that there's a knowledge of Jesus that is there, right? So I'm not against this psalm, and I wouldn't say it shouldn't be part of the canon of songs that you sing in the church, right? But it's assuming that you know who Jesus is as the Messiah and the understanding of the gospel that is there. Great song to be sung at the end of an evangelistic service calling people to respond, to bow at the feet of Jesus, who has just been presented in, in the truth that is proclaimed. But slightly different than actually a song that's instructing one to another. Does that difference make sense? Well, it's from a, it's from a perspective of rather than teaching one another, it's a song that's directly, directly to the Lord. Yeah, yeah. And this is worth a conversation to be said. When we gather together, what is it that we are doing when we're singing the songs? Certainly there is a way in which we are to be responding vertically to the Lord. And also, when we come to the scriptures, we also see that the New Testament church is a people who are singing to one another. Let's look at two verses, and then I want to kind of unpack a few other things here. Look at Colossians 3, right? Colossians chapter 3. And my goal this morning is not for us to get overly anal retentive about songs, right? Or to be overly negative, as much as to build a few categories to help us think through what is the diet of songs that we're singing and how are we to be thinking about that. So Colossians 3, passage that speaks of the word of Christ dwelling richly within us. And again, oftentimes we read this as kind of personal. Right? The Spirit is dwelling within us as kind of personal Dixie Cups, right? that we are individuals who are filled by the Spirit, individuals whose hearts are filled with the Word. And yet Paul is speaking here to a corporate gathering. He's speaking to the church. Notice what he says. He says in verse 15 of Colossians 3, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So this one body, this gathering together, Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Right? So here's the corporate gathering of people who are to be exhorting and teaching and instructing one another. Right? So not just thinking individuals, but people of Christ together, one body, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right? One of the goals, so hearing the songs being prepared for us to sing in just a few moments, is that when we sing these songs to Christ, we're also singing to one another, right? The modern picture of a worshiper often looks like this, right? And there's a place for that, to think about your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to close your eyes to all the distractions that are there, and to give praise and glory and honor to Christ. 
and, not or or but, but and, we're to be singing to one another. So that we look to the brothers and sisters in Christ who are around us, and we're preaching the gospel to one another in the songs that we're singing. Right? When we come to the Lord's table, we're to be reminded of what Christ has done, and at the same time, we're to look around at one another to see the brothers and sisters in Christ that we will be gathered in glory with on the last day. Right? And to say, yes, this is my sister in Christ. This is my brother in Christ. And we break of the bread and we eat of the bread together that reminds us of how we are in one family of faith together. Right? I think one of the things that we have to be aware of, and we'll talk about this in a moment, is how individualistic we are trained to be in our singing, in our worship, in our church attendance, in all of life, right? And yet singing is such a corporate reality where we're teaching and singing to one another, right? This is why, again, that doctrine matters so much, that healthy food that we're eating and passing around to one another. So get another passage. This is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I'll leave it to Matt and, uh, and Kevin to uh, answer the questions about tongue speaking in the church. Uh, but I just want to draw one point of application here from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Paul says, What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Right? This, I think, is a positive proof text to say, okay, what we're singing, we should understand what we're saying. And that it's important that our worship is not just kind of following along the music, getting caught up in the beat, or the synthesizer, but rather that we are actually giving worship to God in understanding of the truth that is being communicated there. That we are to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. And so the diet that we feed ourselves as we drive in our cars or the diet of songs that we sing as we gather corporately should be doing something to inform and instruct the mind, especially as we're teaching one another with songs, right? So with that in mind, I want to just kind of give a little church history lesson. Um, make sure that my time is not running too quickly. All right, we've got 20 minutes. So we'll see how much church history we can do here in just a moment. And that is to say, here are a few categories to think about um, with respect to things we find in our song. Maybe some of these terms are familiar, maybe they are not. I'll try to define them briefly, give a little nugget of church history here, uh, and then just kind of see how do they show up in our songs. So the first word here is mysticism. Mysticism. Charles Hodge, he was a theologian in the 19th century, defines mysticism in this way. Any system, whether philosophical or religious which makes the feelings the source of knowledge and which assigns more importance to the feelings than the intellect. I might define it slightly different to say that it is the pursuit of God unmediated by the word. Right? It is a direct encounter with God. You go back in church history, names like Hildegard of Binion, John of the Cross, and Madame Guillaume are some of the mystics who have been famous in the church. Often, the Catholic Church would have these mystics that are there. But another one, Catherine Emmerichs, who wrote The Dolores Passion of the Christ. Am I familiar with that title? Mel Gibson. Yeah. Mel Gibson got a lot of his ideas from that book, 
that was written by Catherine Emmerich's, right? The visions that she had put down in paper got picked up on the screen and put into the passion of the Christ. So some of these things are not that far away from us. Or Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. I mean, my own personal testament had a huge impact on my life when I was a 19-year-old. And yet, there are ways in which that instruction is calling us not just to find God in the Bible and in prayer mediated by the Bible, but to find Him in all sorts of other ways, to have direct access and direct mediating, or excuse me, direct uh, experience of God. What is that? It's mysticism, right? If we ask ourselves, just in church history, how is mysticism played out, it's always moving away from the Bible or finding an experience of God that goes over and beyond. It's the way that says, you know what? My worship is not to gather with people in a stuffy church on Sunday. I just go and experience God in the forest, or the lake, or the golf course. Right? <laughs> this is how I have unmediated experience of God. Right? Mysticism can be played out in all these different ways. Go play golf. But don't skip church to go play golf, right? There's something that happens in the proclamation of the Word of God that is not reproducible in anything else, right? How do you think mysticism can play into the songs that we sing? One thing that these mystics would often do is speak of God in very romantic ways, very sensual ways. Sloppy wet kiss. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. How many songs, if you were to take them away from Christian radio, would say, that's just a boyfriend-girlfriend song, right? And that language of a sloppy wet kiss, um, you know, and oh, how he loves me, is a mystical experience of God, right? So, some have changed that to an unexpected kiss or something like that. But still, that stream runs in our songs. The mysticism is one, right? Here's another one. Subjectivism. Very much like mysticism, but a little bit more intellectual. You could go back to the Enlightenment period, where a turn to the subject take place. Probably know this term. Uh, I think, therefore I am. This is what Rene Descartes said. He locked himself in his apartment until he could know something absolutely. And he let himself out when he finally figured out, well, I think and I doubt, therefore I can know that. And he rebuilt his entire faith on that. He wasn't trying to undo the Catholic faith that he had, but he was just trying to find something that was foundational on which he could understand. And so what happened was, instead of authority being found in the Word of God, or in the church, or something outside of himself, the authority now became inside of himself. Right? And this whole turn to the subject became a place where authority is personal. And we see this all the time. Right? Now that's good for you, but that's not good for me. Right? Subjectivism came about in so many strong ways in academic places in the Enlightenment that has come downstream to us, so it's everywhere today. Right? And you can think about how this impacts our worship. No longer are songs giving us confessional truth about God, but rather it's about how I feel. Right? Theology and sound doctrine has become biography or autobiography. Right? And my experience of God is over and above more important than who God actually is. Right? And once again, you go back to the first song that we sang, the second one, Just Say the Name of Jesus, 
the movement of Hillsong is doing a great deal of just kind of subjective terms of, of experiencing things and cultivating emotions that may or may not have sound doctrine that is propelling those emotions. Or in this case, what we saw here is there's actually some false doc- doctrine that is being put out there as well. But subjectivism is a huge reality that has impacted the way that we worship today. Number three, and I know this is way too fast to go through these things, but I just want to maybe build a couple shelves that you can think about or talk about later on. Pantheism, or panentheism, right? The historical denial of a transcendent creator in the Enlightenment period and beyond also resulted in something of a fusion between God and the world. Uh, If you couldn't know God out there, if he wasn't a transcendent God, creator over all things, well then he became kind of one in all, in all in one. You could trace this idea back to Greek philosophy. You could trace it forward to more Eastern thought today. Right? The movie Avatar is a panentheistic movie where creation is God and God is creation. We see this in the New Age movement as well. It's the difference between seeing God as creator and we are his creatures and the distinction between the two. And somehow that there is this, again, an unmediated just kind of God is in everything. Right? So... How does this impact our music? Well, there's one song that has gotten a lot of airplay, a little bit older. We think, this is the air I breathe. Your very presence living in me. It's like you have to do a lot of theological work behind those lyrics to actually get that to a Christian belief. Right? Yes, it's the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son who's dwelling within me, and I'm a part of the living temple that he is. That's true. But just that lyrics there is not helping any unbeliever to be able to actually understand what it means that Christ is in us and that we are in Christ. But rather, it's just this sense of the divine because he is in everything, right? We certainly believe that Christ and God is omnipresent. Christ, by his spirit, is omnipresent. He has created all things. But that's fundamentally different than the experience of everything just being divine. Right? And once again, if there is not specificity in the language of the, of the, uh, the songs we're singing, we, cannot, we can be moving in directions that is just more this feelings of God in a generic sense, instead of seeing God revealed in the incarnation, revealed through the crucifixion, revealed through redemptive history. Right? One of the things that pantheism denies is any kind of chronological ordering to the world. And yet the fundamental faith of the Christian says God created the world out of nothing. He is the sovereign superintendent of all of redemptive history, bringing his son into the world at a specific place in a specific time. He died on a specific tree. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And 40 days later, he is ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back again. Right? There's a very clear historical reality that a pantheistic or panentheistic view of the world will not embrace. Right? So in our singing, it's helpful to remind ourselves of the history of these things and the story that we find ourselves in. Here's the fourth thing. Pietism. Pietism. Now this is not the same thing as piety. Piety is a word for spiritual mindedness. Pietism is a movement that reacted against the cold institutionalism of the church. And it drove the experience of God, again, into the individual. It was historically rooted in German Lutheranism, Uh, but it's not limited to that. In particular, it sought to move towards an individualist experience of God rather than the corporate worship of God. So personal holiness at the individual level 
was more important than gathering with the church, gathering with God's people. So here's what uh, one author said, Harold O.J. Brown, in his book called Heresies. These are his words, not my words. He says, Martin Luther introduced meaningful hymns sung in the language of the people as one of the fundamental aspects of Reformation worship. The first phase of the Reformation took the universal church out of the center of attention and replaced it with the local congregation. This second wave of the Reformation, what he describes as pietism, if we may call it that, redirected attention from the congregation to the individual believer. So it's a kind of turn to the subject within the church. And he goes on and he says, Christians began to sing I rather than we. The hymn originally emphasized by Luther in the effort to enable all the people to participate in worship and experience a sense of unity came to be the expression of the individual in his quest for God. In its extreme form, it became the vehicle for an individualistic preoccupation with the self. Right? Our songs are so filled with I that we don't even think about that. Right? And I wouldn't say that we should just eradicate every song that has I in it. But we should be aware of like, okay, do we even have a category to make a distinction that we should have a diet of songs that are bringing collectively a people together in unity with one another and songs that speak of I as well, right? It's helpful to have some of those categories in place. Number five, the Keswick movement. Have you heard of Keswick theology? A little bit Kevin has. So Keswick, England is a place in the northern part of England in 1875. There's a conference there. It still goes on today. Part of the holiness movement. Have you ever heard the term let go and let God? That's Keswick theology in a nutshell. Right? Andy Maselli has written a book called No Quick Fix. Much of the theology is this idea of just needing to surrender everything to God. Right? It takes a half-truth and makes it a whole truth, and therefore it leads to an untruth. I'm going to borrow some of J.F. Packer's language. Right? It's absolutely right that we are called to be not I but Christ. We are to surrender ourselves to Christ. But if that's all our understanding of sanctification and our growth in godliness, what are we missing? We're missing the warfare that the Holy Spirit empowers us to live out to put death to sin in the body. Right? Sanctification is giving ourselves over to God, and because we're new creatures in Christ, it is saying no to those old patterns and living a life of repentance, bearing fruit with that repentance, putting those sins to death, and walking aggressively in the ways of Christ. Right? And so lyrics that speak only of, I give myself to you, I surrender all, all of me to you, it's like it gets half of it, but it doesn't get all of it. And if we're not thinking about the diet that is there, it's like having all carbohydrates with no protein, right? You need carbohydrates and you need protein, right? You need both of those in there, right? But if we're not aware of that, we can just be moving toward this kind of hyper-passive understanding of sanctification, right? Instead of seeing how, no, he's made us alive to put these things to death. Modernity. That's the question, what makes the modern world modern, right? Mass communication does, mass transit does, mass materialism, mass marketing. We live in a global world today, right? What is local is global. What is global is imported into well, our very phones, right? This is part of the modern technological world in which we live. 
David Wells has called this the world cliche culture, right? That has just had an impact on us. That why are we so uptight and tense when we're learning about all the events all over the world? If we went back 150 years ago, we'd be concerned about the things in our local area. We wouldn't be worried about the things going on in China, the things going on in Europe, perhaps even things going on in Washington, D.C., or if we did, we would have heard about them three months later instead of instantaneously learning about all the crises that are all over the world. That has a tremendous impact on our souls and our hearts. Right? This is the modern world in which we live. How does that also impact the way that we choose our songs today? We live in a world filled with mass marketing and mass communication. Where are our appetites being formed in the things that we sing? The radio we turn on? The music that Nashville chooses to give to us? Right? There are all kinds of choices that are being made about the music that is published or not published. Right? And so instead of having doctrinal concerns at the forefront, there are marketing concerns that are at the forefront. We won't sell this music because it won't sell. Therefore, we're going to sell the things that will sell, even if those things may not be most healthy and helpful for us. Right? So again, it's not to say that everything you hear out there is bad. As much as says like this also has an impact upon us, that the things that we are training ourselves to have a taste for, by the radio that we listen to or everything else, is shaping the appetite. And one of the things that the church has to do is to say, these are the appetites that we are to be training and desiring, and it comes from the Word of God, not what Nashville or what the marketing brands tell us that we ought to enjoy. Right? Number seven. Charismatic theology. Not picking on those who come from charismatic backgrounds, those who hold to a continuation of the gifts. It's just helpful to know a little of the history here, right? Um, the charismatic movement really comes in about three or four waves. Um, most of them come from California uh, over the last 120 years, right? So going back to about 1906, 1909, forgetting which one it is. Uh, the Azusa Street, uh, Rob, do you know what year it was? 1906. There are a few things that were going before that, even in Kansas, that came out to California at that time. But this is where Pentecostalism, the revival of tongues, came at that time, and denominations were formed from that. So Assemblies of God and others were created at that time. The Charismatic Movement came later, and this was one that was not creating denominations and institutions, but it began to just filter into different already standing denominations, even the Catholic Church has a, a charismatic movement within it. Uh, we live in Northern Virginia where there are lots of Anglican churches, and most of the evangelical Anglican churches are also charismatic Anglican churches. It's like, what a strange combination of Anglicans and charismatic and all the rest. But that was just one of the things that happened, and it had a huge impact on music, right? It had a huge impact on music that from the beginning of the Christian... Uh, contemporary Christian music scene, there were those who were in the charismatic movement who were kind of behind that. And then the third wave movement, which came with Vineyard and Fuller Seminary, began to impact those like John Piper and uh, uh, Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem uh, dedicates his systematic theology to John Wimber, uh, who is the head of Vineyard Churches. And so there's a way that it's just had an influence there with lots of things going on with music. Again, I'm not picking on that. I'm just saying it's good to know where some of these streams are coming from. The one thing I will pick on. That's more of a fourth wave. In the last 10, 20 years, there's something known as the New Apostolic Reformation. 
kind of heard about this? So the Apostolic Reformation basically believes that there's come a time where the Spirit is being poured out again, and that there are now apostles and apostolic hubs. And these apostolic hubs have places of power and revival, that if you go to that place, you too can experience the presence and the power of God in this way. So Bethel Church in California uh, would be one of them. Bill Johnson and some of the teaching that's gone on there, uh, filtering through things like um, Bethel Music uh, and Jesus Culture and even touching the Hillsong and everything else. It's not just that there is, okay, we were really big on the Spirit, but it's moving into areas of theology that do not conform to a right understanding of the triune God. Right? So God now becomes all about a power experience. Jesus becomes a uh, a model of a miracle worker, and the spirit is more like a drug ecstasy than actually walking us into holiness and leading us into love, right? Lots of language about Jesus, lots of language that is about the Bible, but defining it entirely different. And they have a whole agenda to build the kingdom of God on the earth, and they're using every platform possible to bring that forward, especially music. So the music that is coming from Hillsong, the music that is coming from Bethel, the music that is touching all these different ways is, again, having this idea of bringing heaven down to earth. So many ways, it's a post-millennial theology that the people of God are able, by the Spirit, to be able to bring God's kingdom down, right? So fundamentally different than a right understanding of the gospel. It says, we too seek first the kingdom of God, but we do that by proclaiming the gospel and walking in the power of the Spirit to say no to ungodliness and to walk in love and in light. Right? So they use, again, lots of different language that would be familiar to us, but they define it differently. Right? It's like Irenaeus. Irenaeus was an early church father who talked about the way in which the Gnostics who were taking a picture of the king and turning it into a picture of the fox. They took the mosaic and they unscrambled it, and instead of having a picture of the king, they made a fox. So much of what is going on in the New Apostolic Reformation is taking the parts of the faith that we would say, yeah, these things are true. However, they reform them and they repackage them in such a way that the total presentation is entirely different than Orthodox faith and Orthodox gospel truth. That makes sense. So, that's one of the things that's out there. And it has such an impact on us today because in the culture of even many evangelical churches, there's something known as moralistic therapeutic deism. Right? So this is another big word. It simply comes from a study by James Davidson Hunter. The book was Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And he talks about moral behavior... Uh, instead of gospel repentance and faith. That this is the, the way that the gospel is presented. That God is more of a healer and a helper, instead of God as a justifier and a judge who brings salvation by the sending of his son uh, to die on the cross for our sins. That God is waiting for us in our time. He functions more as a concierge than he does as the Lord who is transcendent over all. So you think, how might this impact our, our music. Well, if this is the predominant way of thinking, even in Christian churches today, it makes great soil for self-centered experiential music that's all about my experience of God. And we wonder why those who grow up in the church depart from the church when they leave or grow up to college or go on. It's because it was always about their experience and they just found something else that would be a greater buzz. 
instead of healthy doctrine of the gospel that is leading people to see their need for a Savior and their need for Christ and what He has done to pay the penalty for our sin and to celebrate that. Right? So, to come back to Titus, right? See, we have about one minute left. Come back to Titus. Those who lead the church are to give themselves to sound doctrine. They are to teach healthy words from the Word of God to equip the saints for the work of service, to be able to trust in Christ and to walk in this way. And part of that is to refute the error that comes into the church as good things to eat. But there's some poison in that. It's important to know the things we are putting in our heart and putting in our lives. So hopefully these categories here can help see some of those things. It's not to throw everything out, but it is to say, check the label. Check to see what is in and where these things are coming from so that you can continue to abide in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. If we had more time, we could unpack the other side of that column there. Uh, but I can assure you of this, I've been deeply encouraged by some of the things that Kevin sent me, and even the way uh, that your pastors are thinking about worship and the theology behind that. Uh, our church is thinking through these things right now. I've been helped by some of the documents they've put together and uh, continue, to, continue to walk in that way. Any thoughts, questions that we can talk about on the way to, to church together? Uh, let's go ahead and, uh, and close with a word of prayer. Can we pray for us? Close. But we want to be healthy. We want to think wisely. We want to be Bereans, not only with the preaching that we hear, but with the songs that we sing. And so, Father, we pray that you would help all of us, both in this room and at our church, that you would grow our powers of discernment, that we might receive the good and leave the bad. Father, I pray that you'd help us to recognize what is unhealthy in certain songs that we listen to or even songs that we sing. We pray that in all of our singing and in our living, we would give you all the glory and that we would celebrate as the focal point of that the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf as the church. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.